I have an important story to tell that Canadians will want and need to hear. It is my intention in the coming days to tell that story, not to lay blame, but to ensure that we all learn from this experience. An honourable man dragged through a very dishonourable process by a government with zero honour. And today, Vice Admiral Mark Norman breaking his silence um, after having what has been career-ending charges dropped. And uh, while we have heard parts of this story, without question, there is much more to this story and one the Trudeau government would uh, like to go away, but it is not. And Norman made it clear today he's got much more to tell to Canadians and that they deserve to hear it. And I have a feeling that both Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould may be familiar with the position he now finds himself in, albeit they didn't get dragged through the mud with a bankrupted, you know, by being bankrupted by a government hell-bent on, you know, putting him out to pasture. But the legal stuff, you know, the court stuff may be over for Trudeau, but the political fallout has not even started Retired Colonel Michel Drapeau joins us. He is with Michel Drapeau Law in Montreal, which just happens to specialize in military and veteran law cases. Good to have you, sir. What an extraordinary day, and I think one of the first times that we've heard from Vice Admiral Norman speak, and he wants to get right back to the job. Are you surprised by that? No, I'm not. I mean, that's exactly the thing to do. He wants to, I mean, he's still a serving officer. He's been suspended for two years with pay. He still has a lot, a lot of fire in the belly. He's, he's obviously, his, his knowledge of uh, of the Navy is still second to none. He, he used to be a commander of the Navy at, and at one time the vice chief of defense staff. So he wants to go back to work, wants to contribute his his assets and quality and experience and expertise to that. So I, I think his, his ambition is... Uh, is very reasonable and very legitimate. So whether or not there's a job for him, that will depend an awful lot on both the minister and the chief of defence staff. Uh, but and if it doesn't, then they would have to uh, to ask that he take his release on a voluntary basis. So that that's a separate thing. So uh, for him, at the end of a long uh, two-year wait that he's been suspended, quite normal that he wants to go back to work and uh, and basically serve in a profession that. Uh, you know, he has spent the past three decades um, uh, working in. You know, without question, I think while watching him in his first scrum today, breaking his silence, uh, it was quite clear, even though he didn't say much, I think the expressions and the emotion on his face spoke volumes today. He certainly has a lot to say. He did. I think uh, it depends whether or not he gets, he gets back serving, then he will be respected like every other member of the forces from speaking to the media without prior authority. If he does not, uh, then uh, we may have a, you know, a very ready uh, and uh, interlocutor who will address some of the issues that, uh, that he has experienced. So uh, it may be, in fact, in the best interest of everybody to see him back on uh, at his place of duty. Yeah, funny that he'll get uh, reinstated probably by eight o'clock tonight, uh, and then we'll, you know, not not hear anything. But interestingly, General Vance would be his boss again, the man who fired him and was supposed to testify against him. How would that working relationship uh, move forward? Uh, with uh, a lot of uh, a lot of careful uh, care- careful uh, attention by uh, by everybody, sort of. Uh, uh, so it will depend on what kind of a job he's in and uh, 
in, in Woodville Hunters a fresh start. He has reported uh, that he has been in touch at regular intervals with General Van, so I guess they kept the flame alive all through that particular time, so maybe the reconciliation may not be as, 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 as difficult as one imagines. When you take a take a look at some of the things that have happened over the last couple of years, none of it, which uh, you know, none of it, which reflects badly on on the vice admiral, um, but certainly, you know, there's confusion because the liberals are going around now saying, "Well, look, this was independent." The crown says it was independent. Uh, Marie Heenan backs up the fact that this was done independently. That's not necessarily true. While the decision not to proceed with the case may have been done at the independence of the prosecution, it's very clear that throughout the last year, at least, and certainly through pre-trial, that there was a lot of obstruction by the government in putting uh, documents out and giving information that they were supposed to do. Uh, Marie Heenan basically had to kick, drag, and scream to get any kind of information, still didn't get it. So there was plenty of politics being played with this case. Well, there was politics from the get-go. I mean, let's let's remember that the plaintiff was the minister of the Crown, Scott uh, Bryson, mm-hmm. uh, as uh, as a result of him chairing a first cabinet subcommittee, uh, cabinet committee, and the subject matter that was in dispute was the the release of cabinet confidences, uh, item one, item two. Throughout the long period, there's been 16 months since charges were laid when the defense uh, were trying to obtain, as it is their right to obtain full disclosure. Um, it, you, know, you use the word obstruction. I, I use a different word, but it came up to exactly the same. Um, the defense attorney had to go back to court time and again and to, uh, and to receive judicial authority in order to force, in fact, and when we say government, we're most precisely speaking about the, the Privy Council office and the, and, and the Prime Minister office, which is which is there working side by side with the political um, forces. So uh, obviously, the political masters would have been kept informed as to what was being requested, what was being uh, censored or, or or redacted, and what was being released. Uh, the um, the justice, before closing the trial this morning, made the point that until two weeks ago, or two days ago, I should mm-hmm. say, she was already looking at various documents and to make sure, in fact, that they, uh, and, and to decide upon whether or not they should be disclosed, and she had decided that they would be, and I guess she would have made that available, that decision available to the parties two days ago. So, yes, throughout a PCO, uh, and I'm told there were six or seven lawyers from the PCO at, at uh, trial every time that they, that they open up, because, in fact, they were the keeper of, of, of the documents, the keepers of, uh, of some of the evidence, whether to be released or not. And in some cases, their, their hesitation might have been well-founded because some of these documents would have been cabinet confidences. But be that as it may, did they play a role in it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Was their role within the parameters that you would expect uh, in keeping a distance from the political to the judiciary? Uh, probably. But, you, you know, you, you can't escape the notion that uh, on the political forces and those assisting political forces were directly involved in the process. Yeah, and not once, but twice. I mean, had SNC not taken place, it might not have gone uh, noticed the way it has been. But certainly we're talking now about two cases in a country um, that tells us and a government that tells us that we must abide by the rule of law, and yet the appearance certainly suggests they don't follow their own um, their own lecture. Yeah, and given the high profile of both cases, it, uh, if there is any warts or any things that needs to be addressed and needs to be corrected, it's it's you know it's a magnifying glass only because of the of the of the media coverage and 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 the ranks uh, of the uh, of the individual, the size of the organization. 
So, uh, yeah, uh, and in the process, it certainly brings it to the ordinary citizen and uh, in, in his and her capacity to make a mm-hmm. judgment as to whether or not the system works as fair, as independent as it ought to be. At the end of the day, we had an honorable man, still an honorable man, dragged through a very dishonorable process um, by a government that didn't want a, a shipping contract or a, a procurement issue brought to light. Uh, Vice Admiral Mark Norman simply wanted a ship built that the, the Navy needed. It was built. It was built on time, within budget. Uh, and the last two years of his life have been made absolute hell for, for standing up and doing what he was supposed to do. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I, I'm glad that you make this analysis. I think this analysis is, is, uh, is basically what a reasonable person everywhere, uh, taking a reasonable look at it, will, will arrive and will conclude. Uh, so, um, you know, at the very least, if there is one issue facing the Canadian public, it seems to be, you know, to, to, to have a general understanding and, and everybody seems to be on the same sheet of music, it's this one. It's one of the more complicated technical cases, so a lot of people probably don't know who Vice Admiral Mark Norman is. They may not ever hear about this, but if you were to break this down and explain to Canadians, you know, why should they care? Why should they care about Vice Admiral Mark Norman and what has happened here? Well, the issue is, uh, you know, uh, the fellow is one of the highest rank in the public service or the military. And if somebody doing his job with with competence and, and zest, uh, uh, has to face this kind of obstacle along the way, then you have to wonder whether or not a similar treatment could be reserved to somebody who doesn't have the kind of scale of public profile or, or ability to sustain that. Uh, and uh, if it is, and if there is correction to be made to the system to make sure it's fairer and more open and, and more independent, then it, it's, it's our interest for ourselves and uh, those that follow, our sons and daughters, to make sure that the system, in fact, use this as, as a measuring stick by which we can, we can bring about improvement and bring about a distance between, uh, between the political forces and, the, you know, and, 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 and others within the judicial system. No system is perfect. Ours is not. Uh, and every, every time along the way, in every nation, democratic nation, there, is a, there comes a time that you need to take pause and you need to take a look at, and, and sometimes you need to have a set of facts and circumstances that brings you to it. I think we're there now with, uh, with both uh, SNC-Lavalin in this case. There is reason and there is enough in there to bring about the necessary corrective measures. Yes, that would be called an election and voting the uh, government out. Uh, just quickly before I let you go, one of the more compelling and one of the more, I think, emotional parts of uh, Mr. Norman's scrum this morning was in reaching out and thanking Canadians and military members, retired uh, veterans, you know, veterans that don't have any money and certainly have not been treated very well by by a number of governments and thanking them for the dollar or the $2 or the $5 that they contributed to his defence. Th- this is a case that if you knew about it, you were touched by it and Canadians were touched by it. Uh, but the military family remains strong, even though uh, they haven't necessarily been treated um, with such loyalty. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think it's a, it's a right occasion and it's generous on his part to have taken time to set that. Mr. Drapo, thank you very much. I always appreciate your thoughts. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. That is Michel Drapeau joining us here tonight. You're on Point on Global News Radio.